Thanks for listening to one of the audio messages from Cornerstone Church Airdrie. My name is Brad, and I'm the lead campus pastor and primary preaching voice here at Cornerstone Church Airdrie. We believe that the God who spoke so clearly all through the pages of Scripture is still speaking to his kids today. So if it's me who's speaking to you or someone else on this recording, as you listen, we pray that you would know God, know his hope, know his purpose, and know his power. Enjoy the message. I have have got a, a burning message inside of me to share with you today. Um, if you want to follow along with our text, you can turn to the Old Testament book of Esther, Esther chapter four. This week I'd actually planned on starting a new sermon series, and I've even written a new sermon series on the book of Philippians, well, not the whole series, but began to write a sermon series on the book of Philippians. But I really felt compelled this week to write and share a different message, something that's been stirring in my heart for a while, but really came into focus and form for me this week. We are going to be starting that series, looking at the book of Philippians later on. Just not this week. Just not this week. And maybe not over the next couple. We're going to see where we can get. And we're going to share this. And then I got a couple other things that, that maybe are on my radar a little bit that weren't, weren't there before. But this week, if you want to follow along, you need to be in the book of Esther. Now, and, and we're specifically Esther chapter 4 is where we're going to end up. But to understand where we're going to end up in the book of Esther, we're going to need to set all kinds of context. There, there's so much context that goes into Esther chapter 4 that we have to actually lay a whole lot of groundwork in order to get there to understand both what's taking place in, in Esther chapter 4 and the greater concept of what we're going to be talking about today. Now, the book of Esther opens up with a party. A party that's thrown by the king of Persia. King Xerxes was throwing this huge, lavish party. Xerxes was, was also pronounced, he had multiple names. His other name was Ahasuerus, which, which is, is another name for him. Kings at that time often had multiple names, which might account for why the Hebrew Bible uses this name. Because Ahasuerus was actually a pun. This is a joke. This is an ancient Hebrew joke that they use to describe the king because the, when, when you speak the name like that in ancient Hebrew, it's a pun that essentially says King Headache. And so when, when he's written about in throughout Esther and, and, all, and in other places, he's not referred to by his, his royal regal name. The ancient Hebrews referred to him as King, Head, king Headache. But King Xerxes was incredibly powerful. Some had called him the King of Kings because his empire was one of the largest the world had ever seen. It spread from modern-day Ethiopia all the way to modern-day Pakistan. Now, unlike the Assyrians... When, when the Persians conquered your land, they were pretty reasonable. They, they were deal makers. Essentially, you would swear your allegiance to them, but they would leave the governing kings and governors in power as long as they were willing to go along with the Persians, pay their share of the taxes, and from time to time, just pay random tribute to the Persian king. It was essentially a protection racket. You, you send gold, jewels, slaves, and soldiers to Persia, and then Persia would protect you. If, if somebody came around knocking on your door, you, the full per fury of the Persian army would, would defend you. And this is where the story of Esther 
picks up. Xerxes is in year three of his reign as king and also is six months into this party. This party has been actually going on for six straight months that he's throwing to celebrate himself and his kingdom and his rule and his reign. He'd summon rulers and governors and military officials from all across the empire to a city called Susa, which was the wintertime capital of Persia. And aside from the lavish display of his wealth, the party was a war council drumming up support for an upcoming campaign against the Greeks. Now, there, there is a story to be told here. You may have heard of 300 and Sparta and kind of all of that stuff. That's what they're actually preparing for with this party, is that, that campaign against the Greeks and the Spartans. But the palace in Susa was a stunning display. The hall where this party takes place had 36 columns that stood 70 feet tall, each with a carving of a twin bull at the top, supporting a ceiling built with massive wooden timbers. Everything had a sculpture, an engraving, a gold embellishment, a covering of silk. Here's how rich and opulent Xerxes was. A few years later, when the Greek war ended in failure for Persia, the Persians retreated and the Greeks actually overtook Susa. And Herodotus wrote, who was a Greek historian, wrote that the Greeks found gold and silver couches left behind. Not coins, not statues, couches made of gold and silver. But Xerxes was not just this benevolent leader simply about excess. Life was often terrifying under his reign. The king wielded near absolute power in his kingdom. He gave life and he took life. He conscripted Susa's sons to his armies and its daughters to his harem. Criminals and offenders of the crown were regularly impaled on stakes and hoisted high into the air, their twisted bodies a warning to anyone who thought to violate the law or fall in disfavor with the kingdom. His name was revered and his decrees were terrified. But on the seventh day of this feast, of this six-month party that he's throwing, things got a little weird. It says in Esther chapter 1 verse 10 that the king was in high spirits with wine, which is a polite way of saying he got drunk and stupid. And Xerxes begins to shout for his queen. He rounded up his advisors and sent them to go find his queen and bring her before the raging, raging crowd. Opinions vary on exactly what was happening at this point in the story. And some commentaries, Vashti, the queen, gets painted as a villain, a stubborn wife who is too concerned with her own business to respectfully submit to her husband's request. But I have my doubts about that interpretation. After all, this was ancient Persia, meaning Vashi's summons would likely lead to some form of sexual humiliation or violence. Persia, generally speaking, was not a fun place to be a woman. Women, including the queen, were property. But not tonight. Vashti heard the throb of the music, heard the roar of the mob, and tonight Vashti would say no to the king for her dignity for the dignity of her handmaids, for the women of Persia, Vashti would say no. But no one says no to the king when the king considered himself to be God. And yet in the presence of the ordinary people of Susa, when the king plastered and shameless shouted for the queen, she said no. The king was humiliated. 
Queen Vashti had set a dangerous precedent. What if women began refusing their husbands' demands? They might even begin thinking and acting for themselves. Even our own wives might become emboldened against us. Something must be done. These were the conversations that were being had in the palace by the advisors with the king as a result of her saying no. And so one of the king's advisors proposed a solution. Banish Vashti. Make an example of her. Show the women of Persia that there were consequences for disrespecting your husband. This would settle a thousand domestic disputes and keep women from getting any high-minded ideas of what they might be able to learn from Vashti. Hidden in this suggestion was another thought. The, the men of Persia will love you for this. And so it was done. The king sent out letters all throughout the empire warning the women of Persia, announcing that for her insolence, Vashti was no longer queen and banished forever. And if you read in Esther chapter 1, they lay this all out for the kingdom about what, how women are not supposed to be thinking. But one of his advisors had another idea. Or sorry, Vashti's banishment hung like a shadow over the palace. Yes, the king had made a point, and yes, the order of things in Persia had been restored by banishing the queen for disobeying her husband. But nonetheless, the king lost a little bit of shine in all of this. His wife had still said no. He still looked kind of weak. So one of his advisors has another idea. What if, said the advisor, you could have your pick of every young, beautiful woman in Persia? I think that's a given, responds Xerxes. No, I mean, we bring them all here and you have them one by one until you find the next one who should be your queen. Xerxes sits back and he scratches his chin and the mechanics of the plan turn over in his mind. It, it's the opposite of what Vashti's, exactly the opposite of what happened with Vashti. She had refused him and sent away. Here, none could refuse without facing the wrath of the empire. And of all of these girls would become part of his collection. It was a revenge of sorts, not on Vashti, but on the kingdom. On any who dared laugh at Vashti's defiance of the king. On any who doubted his power. So the order went out throughout the kingdom, and the business of rounding up the beautiful virgins in Persia began. And here in our stories, where we come to meet a man named Mordecai. The scripture reads, now, there was a Jew in Susa in the citadel whose name was Mordecai. Now, there's a lot to unpack here about who Mordecai was and why he was a Jewish man living in the citadel in Susa with a Persian name like Mordecai. But we're not going to get into all of that today. What you do need to know about Mordecai, though, is that Mordecai had a cousin. Mordecai had a cousin, a girl with two names. She lived with Mordecai because she was an orphan, and it seemed likely that she had two names because her parents gave her one, Hadassus, and Mordecai gave her the other, Esther. And she was selected and taken to the palace and placed inside of Xerxes' harem. And as far as Mordecai or anyone knew, may never be heard from again. Months pass. And a year. Then word came. Esther was summoned by the king and he was mesmerized by her. The king fell in love with the girl. who, And Esther was named queen. Mordecai sighs in relief. She was still captive, but now she was more than a mere slave. 
Now, after this, there's another prominent player that we're soon introduced to, and that's a man named Haman. The Bible tells us that Xerxes takes this man, Haman, and essentially appoints him as his number two throughout the kingdom. And there's this moment at the public installation of Haman that changes everything about everything as it relates to our story. Xerxes commands everyone to bow to Haman just like they would be bowing to the king himself. And everyone does, except Mordecai. He refuses to bow. The image of Mordecai standing alone in the crowd burns in Haman's mind. So he plotted his revenge. Not only did he want to see Mordecai dead, but he wanted to see his entire race wiped off the face of the earth. There's a poison in your empire, Haman tells the king. A scattered people who live by their own laws, worship their own God, and refuse to obey your laws. Why tolerate them, he asked the king. Why let them live apart? Why trust that they will be loyal? Now, of course, the, the scattered people couldn't unset the empire. It was far too big for that. But they could cause a great deal of trouble. They could conspire to undermine him, to erode the realm like an affection. Infection. Who might, or what might these people be capable of? If you would order it, we can destroy them. Annihilate them, Haman tells the king. Put a price on their heads and let the people of the empire itself take care of this problem. Let them kill the Jews and then we can take their possessions, their wealth, and their land. It was a twofold win for the king. Kill a cancer inside the empire and refill the empire's treasures, treasuries. In signing the order, Xerxes becomes complicit to a petty plot for revenge against Mordecai, and he signed his own wife's death warrant. But of course, he's ignorant of all of this at the time. So the order goes out from the citadel. The Jews are to be destroyed, man, woman, and child, on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. And as word, as word of this reaches Mordecai's ears, he's thrown. He tears his clothes and he begins to wail outside of the king's gate. And eventually Esther hears her cousin's wailing and she sends a messenger to speak with him. And Mordecai fills Esther in on what has happened with Haman and everything as it relates to the Jewish people. And the reason why all of this context, this whole story that we've told is important because of what is about to happen next and the position that Esther is about to be put in. Mordecai says this to Esther in chapter 4, verse 14, and this is the main text for us today. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will not arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? But you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai tells Esther that she needs to go and confront the king and his number two. This tyrant king, this vicious, vain king that Esther is only queen because the last woman who confronted him was banished from the kingdom. But Mordecai says, maybe this is why you're here. For such a time as this. For such a time as this. Mordecai was saying to Esther that perhaps God knew all of this from the beginning. 
from even before any of this was happening, perhaps God knew that he needed you. He needed Esther to be here right now to fulfill her purpose. He, need, he knew Vashti was going to rebel. He, he needed you living here with your cousin in Susa so that you could become the new queen. So that in this very moment, right here and now, you could be in this position to be able to do something. And this is the phrase that has been rattling around in my head for, for a while now. For such a time as this. Now today, we're not going to get into the rest of the story of Esther and what, what takes place from here. I think that one day soon, we will do a tremendously deep dive into this amazing book and the story of Esther, Mordecai, Xerxes, Haman, in great detail, because it really is an unbelievable story, and it's been on my heart to do for a while. But the word that I think that God has for us, for you today, is the same word that Mordecai had for Esther in this moment. Mordecai says to Esther, and who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And what God is saying to us today, you are here. You are where you are. You are when you are for such a time as this. It has been said so many times and by so many people that the words have almost become cliche by now, but we are living in unprecedented times. We've never seen a couple months stretch like this before, I would imagine, in anyone's watch, anyone who's watching this, their lifetime. None of us could imagine just like that, school is shut down. None of us could imagine the economy imploding the way that it has. None of us could imagine just like that, we can't come to church anymore. We can't see our family anymore. We can't do all of the things that just in a moment were seemingly taken away. Fear and anxiety gripping the entirety of the world in a way that is seemingly unprecedented. We had no idea this was coming. No idea that this would be the scale that the world would need to respond. No idea that life was going to be turned upside down and shaken like this. And yet, here we are. This is where we find ourselves. And there's so much uncertainty and so much confusion. What should we do? What should we not do? Who do we listen to? Who do we not listen to? How do we know what's true? But yet, the truth is that not one thing has happened since that guy ate that bat or whatever it was in China that started all of this. Not one thing has caught God off guard. And God wants you to know, he wants to let us know, that he isn't caught off guard by this. He is right now here and with us, walking through this time with us. And I believe that in the middle of this COVID-19 global pandemic, God has a word that he wants to speak over your life and your situation right now. A prophetic word from God for our church right now, for the church right now, a prophetic word from God for you right now, the word is this, you are here for such a time as this, for such a time as COVID. You are here for such a time as COVID. When God created you, when God made you, he had this time in mind. He had this season and this pandemic in mind. He didn't forget about this when he created you. He knew you would be alive right now. But he has uniquely gifted you, built you, positioned you, and created you to be here now in this time and in this moment. And not just to try and survive, 
just to try and make it through, just to try and get through to the next piece of good news, whenever that would be. But God has knit you together inside of your mother's womb with this very season in mind so that you would be equipped and prepared to be able to make the most of this situation. So many of us can be living in fear and worry right now because of all the uncertainty and questions. But the truth is that God has been building us and getting us ready for this season for our whole lives. You have been placed here and now where you are and when you are for such a time as this. Now don't hear in this, your purpose and your identity is only found in this season. But you need to know today, you got this. You have this season because God has brought all of these things around you and your life and your existence together so that you could be here right now. God doesn't, God didn't, and God isn't settling for you. God didn't forget this and leave this part of, your, of this story out of your story. Scripture will say that God knew the days of our life, that he had written them down before we even began to exist. And that didn't change because of COVID-19. That's true of this time, this season, and this pandemic. God knew about it. He knew this season. He knew these days. He had them written down. And so he wasn't and isn't just going to leave us to deal with it. No, he was preparing you for such a time as this. He was gifting you for such a time as this. He was positioning and preparing you for such a time as this. You are here for such a time as this. God has a purpose for you for such a time as this. God has plans for you for such a time as this. God has you for such a time as this. I want to close with a couple of verses from the book that we're actually going to be taking a look at at some point. Philippians, where Paul talks about how to navigate a season like this. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul is talking about the place where he finds himself, and he finds himself in prison. But he says, it's cool, it's okay, because I need to not allow where I find myself to dictate how I feel about where I am. He says this, starting in verse 11. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstance. I know how to be in need and I know how to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether fed or hungry, or whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. He says, I've learned how to live my life wherever I am without wishing that I was somewhere else, without wishing that things were different. I've, I've lived with plenty. So when I don't have any, it would be really easy for me to think back to the times where I've had plenty and allow that to affect how I see things now. And so for so many of us, we can look around at what we don't have right now. We can look around at all that we're missing, all that we don't have, all the things we can't do, all the people we can't see, everything that right now isn't. Just like for Esther, she was taken out of her life. She was robbed of whatever plans she had made for herself and her life, dropped into this other world and this other place, and now she has to deal with that. Standing up for her people and herself and possibly dying for it. She knows 
what life had been like. It hadn't been that long, but now here she is somewhere she wasn't planning or wanting to be. And I'm sure longing for the simplicity of what life used to be. And we can look at what life was even just a couple months ago and say, that, that's what I want. I want everything I had back on March 15th or whatever it was when everything started. I want March 14th. That's all I want. That's all I want out of life. Can we just go back? I didn't ask for this. I want that. But Paul here says, I figured it out. I figured out being hungry, being in prison, even though I expected and experienced plenty, freedom, luxury, everything we want out of life, I have figured it out. I figured out self-isolation. I figured out quarantine. I figured out these seasons in life where it seems like I've lost everything that I love. And what does he say? How, does, how has he done it? Verse 13, he says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I can do all things. I can do times of being in need. I can do times of being in loss. I can do times of frustration, times of anger, times of fear, times when I look around and all I can see is everything that's wrong. All I can see is everything that's not the way it used to be. All I can look around and all I see is everything is different and none of it is good. And I can do it because God's working in me. And God wants you to know today that he is still here. He is still present. He is still giving you purpose and still giving you a reason. He is still giving you the strength that you need to be able to do all things through him. Because he hasn't left us. He hasn't left you. God hasn't called you to just get by. God has given you right now as a gift to your world a gift to your inner circle. The calendar right now, next, next Sunday, is Pentecost Sunday. And it's the day when, when we see and we remember it from Scripture when the Holy Spirit came and met the disciples, where, where the comforter that Jesus said would be with them always was introduced to the world. And we can take hope from the calendar, not by looking at how many days have passed since quarantine began, but we can look and we can say, right, there is a reminder that God will always be with us and God will always be with me, empowering me to do all things, including COVID-19. I said this earlier and I'm going to repeat it. When God created you, when God made you, he had this time in mind. He had this season and this pandemic in mind. He didn't forget about this when he made you, but he has uniquely gifted you, built you, and positioned you, and created you to be here now, in this time and in this moment. And to not just try and survive and get through, but God has knit you together in your mother's womb with this very season in mind so that you would be equipped and prepared to be able to make the most out of this season. You are here for such a time as this. I know you feel afraid. Thanks again for listening to one of the audio messages from Cornerstone Church Airdrie. I pray that you were blessed by what God had to say in this message. 
If you would like to connect further with Cornerstone Church, there are a couple places you can go. First is our website, cornerstonefoursquarechurch.com, and select the Airdrie campus. And some of the best ways to connect with us is through our social media channels. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cornerstoneairdrie. Follow us on Twitter at csairdrie. And on Instagram at cornerstoneairdrie. If you'd like to connect with the pastoral team at Cornerstone, you can do that again through our website, cornerstonefoursquarechurch.com. Click on the Airdrie campus, then click on the About Us on the main menu, and then one last click on Our Campus Pastors. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and get new messages delivered directly to you. We are so thankful to be able to share the gospel message of Jesus Christ with our community in Airdrie and with you today. At Cornerstone Church Airdrie, we are a family not by blood, but a family that's been bought by blood. And that family includes you. We follow Jesus together. As family we go. Oh